As we've been working our way through First and Second Samuel, of course we have discovered that God's will is that David would be king after Saul. It was Saul's disobedience that brought about an end to his kingdom and brought the beginning to David's kingdom. Saul resisted God's will for his life and rebelled against all that God had in store for David. But we find that even after Saul's death, that did not bring an end to the rebellion that was taking place in Saul's family. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is going to seek to be king after Saul's death, even though it had been clearly revealed by God that it was God's will for David to be the next king. And so we have this warring that takes place between the house or the family of Saul and David. We noted that the key verse is 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, for the section of chapters 3, 4, and 5. So we're in the middle of this key section that describes 2 Samuel 3, 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So we are in the midst of this description of Saul's house growing weaker and weaker. Saul's house is imploding. It is ruining itself. It's coming to a destructive end. And there is a detailed account of how that is taking place And we're in the midst of that account in chapter 4. So this morning we're considering the manner in which Saul's house or family just continues to become weaker and weaker. It is self-destructing. Again, it's the weakness of Saul's house in general. And the emphasis with regard to each of the main characters of this narrative is their relationship to Saul. If you notice, there's an overview given to us. First, regarding the weakness of Shibosheth, verse 1. When Shibosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. But notice in verse 1 the, uh, the reminder that Shibosheth is Saul's son. That's what we want to keep in mind. Then we have the weakness of the tribe of, the, of Benjamin in general, in verses 2 and 3. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth, for Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. And if you remember, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So again, it's an allusion to Saul's house and its weakness. And thirdly, the weakness of Saul's grandson, Meshibosheth, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. The end of that verse, and his name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan, of course, was the individual who would have been next in line to be king after Saul's death. That is what one would have imagined. But Jonathan dies in the same battle that Saul dies. With the death of Jonathan, Mephibosheth is in line to become 
a king. But he has his own weaknesses. Now that's kind of the overview. And then it describes these weaknesses in more detail. First, Ibishel's weakness is seen in that he has lost his grip. He's lost his grip. Look at verse 1. When Ibishel, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. His courage failed. That uh, phrase, his courage failed, in Hebrew is actually an idiom. An idiom that uh, literally would be translated, his hands hung low. His hands hung low. Uh, Think of a boxer who keeps his hands up to protect his face and to be ready to to fight. Well, Shimonstath has his hands down by his side. I would say to you a more contemporary idiom would be that he lost his grip. He lost his grip. And he lost his grip in three ways. First, he lost his grip emotionally. Emotionally. Which is the emphasis that the ESV gives to this phrase when it says his courage failed. His courage failed. If you look at verse 1, it says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died. Last week we saw that, that Abner was killed by Joab. Abner was leading the rebellion on behalf of Ishbosheth. He was his main commander. Uh, he was his defender. When Abner was killed, Ishbosheth lost all hope in becoming king. He realized that his day had come. He realized that the fight couldn't go on. So his courage failed. He, he was a wreck emotionally. Secondly, Ishbosheth lost his grip over the kingdom that he was intending to rule, verse 1. For if you notice at the end of verse 1, it reads, And all Israel was dismayed. All Israel was dismayed. Israel were those uh, individuals that were following Ishbosheth up to this point. And they are described as being dismayed. They lost, he lost the support of the people of the nation. That word to be dismayed literally is to be terrified. The Israelites became terrified. They saw the handwriting on the wall. They knew that Ishbosheth wasn't going to be able to be king. That means that all of them were going to be viewed as rebels. All of them were going to be viewed as insurrectionists. All of them were going to be in trouble with this new king, David. And so they are terrified. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They knew that they had thrown their lot in with Ishbosheth, and that was a big mistake. So they are wondering, what would David do to them for their having rebelled along with Ishbosheth? Ishbosheth even lost a grip over his own tribe. The Benjamites were the tribe in Israel to which Saul was a member. If you look at verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin, for Baroth, for Baroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gidim and have been sojourners there to this, this, <coughs> this day. The emphasis being that they are of the tribe of Benjamin. So Ishbosheth is losing power, he's losing his grip, everybody's turning against him, and now we find out even his own tribe. You know, out of all the tribes of Israel, you think he could keep a hold of Benjamin, 
I mean, they're his closest relatives, but they turn on him. The house has fallen apart. Then we find out about Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. His weakened state is given in more detail. Verse 4, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul had Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as he fled in her haste, the, he fell and became lame, and his name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is in a weak position to become king for two reasons. First, his physical condition. He was crippled in his feet. Uh, a king was to be a warrior. A king was to be a leader of the army. Uh, didn't quite match the image of a king of that day. Remember, David is a warrior. He's fighting Goliath. He's this wonderful combatant. Mephibosheth has this physical infirmity. Mephibosheth is weak because of his age. He's only five years old in the time that Jonathan and Saul's death took place. So at this time, might be six, seven uh, years old as all this is going on, perhaps uh, a bit older but very young, very young, very young. Now we're given more detail about this Mephibosheth. First, he's introduced as being a cripple in verse 4, but then it's given more detail. And the more detail is this in verse 4. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That explains why his nurse took him up and fled. She's fleeing with Mephibosheth because he is at risk. His life is at risk. When Saul dies, when Jonathan dies, he's right there to become the next king. So she realizes that his life is now in danger. He's only five years old. So she picks him up and runs with him, and in her haste, she drops him. She drops him. She wants to protect him. She wants to preserve his life, but she ends up doing physical harm. Unintentionally, she drops him, and as a result, he becomes a cripple. He becomes a cripple. The irony of the story is that seeking to protect him, she actually harms him. Everything is going wrong. Everything is contrary to plan. Nothing is working out the way that Saul's family was intending it to work out. Everything is unraveling. Now we see the weakness of the tribe of Benjamin and Rehakimbana in particular. Generally described, we see how they kill Ishbosheth in his sleep, verse 5 and 6. Now the sons of Ramon the Beriathite of Rechab and Banna set out, and about the heat of the, of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach, and Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. So here are these two people who are of the tribe of Benjamin, who are of Saul's family, who rise up against Ishbosheth and kill him in his sleep. 
Now, again, there's more detail given as to what happened. For it tells us in verse 7 that when they came to the house, as he lay on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and put him to death. But now here's the extra detail. And they beheaded him, and they took his head and went by the way of the Arba at night. What do they do? Well, they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David, thinking that they are going to get in with David, thinking that David's going to be rewarding them, thinking that, that David is going to be excited about Ishbosheth's death. Verse 8 And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Rechab and Banna thought that they were positioning themselves for a place of honor and strength in David's kingdom. But they made two very significant miscalculations. The first was the assumption that David regarded Ishbosheth as an enemy upon whom he was going to seek revenge. Look at verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Now these words. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Now these words. Your enemy who sought your life. They thought that David would be thrilled to hear that Ishbosheth is dead. Here is his enemy. And they have done David this wonderful favor of killing his enemy. Kings would routinely annihilate anyone who could make a claim upon the throne. When there was a, a change in dynasty, it was just natural practice. You wiped out everyone that could make a claim upon the throne so that your claim would be free from opposition. But David wasn't that kind of king. David was a different king from all others because David's kingdom was to represent God's kingdom. David was to reign in the way in which Christ would reign in his kingdom. And so David was not interested in revenge or seeking to destroy the competition. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David had consistently refused to seek the life of either Saul, and now we find Ishbosheth. And if you remember, they kept telling him, they being Joab and people of his army, when God made it possible that Saul, uh, that David could kill Saul, he, he realized that he could not put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. It was, it was wrong. He wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. They made a wrong miscalculation. That is, they thought David was going to seek revenge. Secondly, their error that they made was in seeking to claim divine approval for their act. Look at the end of verse 8. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. They were claiming to be acting upon the behalf of God. They were claiming that, that God had authorized, or at least was approval, approving, of this dastardly deed that they had done. 
The Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day. Look what God has done. But they were acting out of their own ambitious desire. They were not seeking to bring about God's kingdom. They weren't seeking to bring about the honor and glory of God. They were wanting to preserve their own head, and they wanted to get ahead. David was not taken in by that ruse at all. It was David's stated conviction that vengeance belonged to the Lord. He said it repeatedly in 1 Samuel 24, 12, 26, 10 to 11. And on this occasion, he reaffirmed that it was the Lord who had delivered him from all his enemies, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Ban, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berithite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. God has always taken care of me. God has always protected me. I didn't need your evil act in order to become king over Israel. He knew that this was not sanctioned by God. Now, did it ultimately serve the purpose of God? Yes. All things work together for good to those that love God. But this was a sinful, heinous act. And he said it was not authorized by God. So David was not swayed by Rechabban's argument. And as he had done with the Amalekite who claimed to have killed Saul, he let them stand condemned by their own words, verses 10 and 11. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. David says, I'm acting consistently, verse 11. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? When he refers to Ishbosheth as a righteous man, we need to understand that not as sinless, not as holy, but as innocent. He's an innocent man, meaning that he had done nothing at that moment to bring about his own death. There, there was no justification for entering into his house while he was asleep and killing him and cutting off his head. It was wrong. It was wrong. And so as a result, at his order, they were put to death. And Ishbosheth's head was given a proper burial in Abner's tomb in Hebron, verse 12. And David commanded his young men, and they killed, uh, they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Hesbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David justly condemned the actions of Rechab and Beanna. They got what they deserved. This was justice. This was David meeting out the justice that was required of his kingdom because they had killed this man while he was asleep. It was a dastardly deed. David also justly and appropriately honors Ishbosheth in the time of his death. He brings honor to him as he had done when Saul died. When Saul died. Don't lose the irony that both Abner and Ishbosheth have similar deaths. That is, they die unexpectedly. They are taken by surprise. 
One of the applications we can see in this, this very section is that a person deserves to be honored simply for holding a place of honor. Ishbosheth, why, why was he honored? Because of his status. Because he was part of the house of Saul. Because he was in line to be a king. Did personally he deserve that? Of course not. He was, he was a rebel. He, he had done many terrible things, but he held a position of honor. And so the word of God teaches us that we're to honor people who are in positions of honor, whether or not personally they're deserving of that respect. We honor the position. David had said earlier, I can't stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Simply because he was king. David said, I have to honor him. It's important that we honor the position even when the person occupies that position is not worthy of honor. In conclusion, what do we learn from this story? Well, first of all, David relies upon the Lord to establish his kingship. David does not take matters into his own hands. Last week we saw that David is innocent of Abner's death. Now we find that David is innocent of Ishbosheth's death. David is principled in all his actions. David is patient. David waits. And David has been waiting and waiting and waiting for years. David is waiting from the time that he slew Goliath all through the time that he is being chased by Saul. Saul finally dies, and he's still waiting. Seven years, David waits, even after Saul's death. He's patient. He's patient, doesn't take things into his own hands. Brothers and sisters, we need to be patient as we wait for God to work. As we wait for God to keep his promises. As we wait for God's will to be accomplished. And we should never take our own destinies in our hand, especially by sinful acts. And thinking that somehow we are justified in our sin because we are trying to, quote unquote, accomplish the will of God. The second great lesson is that David does not reward evildoers when they seem to advance David's own cause. These men think that they're going to be honored. David beats out justice. Even though, even though, they actually are going to be advancing David's cause. David's not taken in by that. David's not taken in by that. David recognizes that he must reward good and he must punish evil. You know, there are people that will flatter us. There are people that will cuddle up close to us. There are people that are going to present themselves as wanting to help us and wanting to advance our cause who themselves are doing very sinful and wicked things. We can't identify, we can't partnership with people that even though what they are achieving might be the will of God, we can't participate in their evil. There is an old line that says, the ends do not justify the means. 
You've always got to keep that in mind. The ends don't justify the means. Don't partnership with evil for a good cause. We must be on the lookout constantly for people who wrap themselves, wrap themselves in biblical language or in godly language in order to justify their actions. People that will say, God bless you. People that will seek to give lip service to God, but in reality are not serving him or doing his bidding. Keep your eyes wide open. Don't be fooled by those that would present themselves as those that are doing the will of God. We continually, in these passages, see David growing stronger and stronger and more fully established. God works slowly. Patience is an important quality for believers in a myriad of situations. Olivia said this morning, I'm learning patience. We're all learning patience, aren't we? That's so much of what the Christian life is, patience. Waiting for God to work. Patience prepares us for usefulness in the kingdom of God. May God grant us patience. May God bring to pass his will. And may we recognize that sin is self-imploding. It just is destructive. And it's destructive to our families. And righteousness builds up. Righteousness establishes. May God cause us to long after righteousness. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your great goodness and grace to us. And give us patience. Give us discernment. May we associate with good and not evil. And Lord, may we certainly never reward evil, but may we punish it. May we, Lord, do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And may we represent you well, even as David wanted to be a king like the true king of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, in all of our dealings, any place in which we have authority, may we be careful that we exercise that authority in keeping with the way in which you exercise authority. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to be very mindful this morning of uh, those that are going to have to be out at uh, the Grove and doing day camp. I know we're under a strict uh, kind of timeline, so we're not going to sing the final hymn, but we're going to go right to uh, the uh, singing of... uh,